And here we go. Vince August podcast, episode seven. We are back after a Veterans Day podcast special where um, I read a letter from a, a, a friend who was in Iraq. Uh, thank you for all the, the kind words, especially from the military people that reached out to me that were thankful that I read that letter to give perspective to what it has been like being overseas, um, fighting in these conflicts, and, and what it was, you know, what they're really dealing with on a daily level. So I really appreciate that from everyone who reached out. Um, and listen, the, the podcast keeps growing. Thank you, everyone, once again. Going to jump right in. Um, I have to get into a lot of what's been going on in stand-up comedy and the state of comedy in America, especially after seeing a lot of backlash towards comedians that I think is so misplaced, um, so over the top. I, I, again, the reactions to certain things, and I don't know if this is just a question of the media latching on to the one or two people out there that create a story, and then you know you get this thread that starts, or if people really feel this way. I am of the opinion that the majority of people are going to side with me on this and say that a lot of what you're seeing is just hype in the media trying to create a story. Uh, the first comedian is someone I know um, personally. We, we don't hang out. We don't you know, text one another. We don't call it up. But we've worked together plenty of times. Michael Che um, has been doing stand-up for about five years. His rise to a, a position of, of prominence has been fast. I mean, this has been like an Eddie Murphy type rise uh michael has been doing stand-up in the city was picked up by the daily show as a correspondent um while he was writing for saturday night live saturday night live got him and put him behind the desk for weekend update um and michael che had a reactive instagram post with regards to again that video that went viral of the woman walking through the New York City streets and the catcalling. So he did a response to the catcalling video, basically saying, you know what, when people come up to me and ask me, oh, my God, you're that SNL guy. Um, what's your name? What's your name? Let's take a picture together. And the reaction to that was women saying, oh, so now you're going to compare um, people coming up to you, asking you for an autograph, asking to take a picture with you with catcalling. You know what? You don't you don't have the proper perspective and you don't know what you're talking about. And what Michael Che was basically saying is, guys, relax. I'm a comedian. This was a joke. I'm having fun. Let's remember who I am and what I do. But the, it was again, it was a serious reaction to an Instagram post and people went nuts over it and again i don't know that it was a ton of people going nuts but it was enough to make you know huffington post um you know and their front page and it was like are you kidding me really this is where we are this is the state of of the reaction to to this type of thing and again it's clear as day michael che was trying to be humorous and just insert wit and if you look at his instagram posts if you look at all of his Facebook posts, it's always about making a joke. And then what happens is somebody gets their hands on this one post and they isolate it. And they separate it from all his other posts. They don't talk about all of his other posts. And then they crucify him 
on that one post as if all of his other posts are about science and ISIS and global warming. So, again, you know, the, the way our media manipulates stuff and the way the public reacts to, to, to stuff is really, really sad. But this is getting into where our state of comedy is. The next guy who got chastised and even more so than Michael Chain, we're, we're going to kind of climb the ladder here, climb the pyramid, is Artie Lang. Now, again, Artie Lang is a guy I've worked with. Um, you know, Artie Lang is a guy who I do have his phone number. Um, I was a guest on his show when he had the satellite show on on Dish Network. Um, you know, Artie is, again, a comedian who a lot of people feel he's this kind of crash and burn, death wish kind of guy. He's trying to live in the footsteps of, you know, John Belushi and... You know, he's, he's sabotaging his own career, whatever. Listen, bottom line, Artie Lang is a comedian who worked on Howard Stern for years, who, again, falls into that shock jock genre, whatever the hell that means. To me, it's there's only one type of comedian, funny, and then the other type is just not funny. Uh, I, I hate this whole shock jock, cringe humor I don't like categorizing comedy. It, it's it's either funny or not, period. So Artie Lang now, on the other hand, what he does and what happens to him is he starts this tweet t- uh, kind of thread where he starts tweeting about one of the, the hosts, the female hosts, on an ESPN show um, with Stephen A. Smith and, and another guy, and I guess they talk about sports and go back and forth, and she's basically the host of the show. And she's an African-American woman, very attractive, extremely attractive. And what happens is in his tweets, he basically creates this sexual fantasy scenario and starts tweeting about him being the, the white slave owner and her being the rebellious slave who flips the tables on him and sexually takes advantage of him. Clearly an attempt at humor. If you read any of those tweets and said, this is about racism, this is a, you know uh, about being cruel to, to, to black people and African-American people, again, you're searching, you're fishing. It's not what it was. It was Artie's attempt at humor. Now, again, was it funny? Was it not funny? That's for the individual to judge. Artie's backlash is different than Michael Chase. A lot of people were asking for Michael Chase's head. No one got it. Artie is immediately, as I understand, banned from any work with ESPN moving forward. They've banned him. Artie was also supposed to do a show um, called At Midnight on Comedy Central, and I think they pulled the plug on him. Now, I don't know if he was going to be a cast member or just a guest that night. Whatever the situation is. Artie was basically pulled from the show. So he actually loses employment from it. Now, as far as ESPN's reaction, Artie, again, if you want to use the word attacked, Artie used an ESPN employee for the basis of his joke, his humor. um, And, you know, I can see ESPN's reaction. We have to protect our employee. We have to protect something that we didn't think was, you know, humorous. We felt it was aggressive, and the the attempted humor failed, 
and created a fear in our employee, a discomfort in our employee, and we're going to protect our employee. I'm fine with ESPN's reaction. Comedy Central's reaction, to me, is misplaced. Comedy Central, your, your network is called Comedy Central. You should know right off the bat that comedy needs to be protected. And if you are now going to start weighing in on what's not funny, what's offensive to the point of firing people or prohibiting people from working on your network because a joke failed, then what you need to do is you need to get an entire roster of every comedian that ever appeared on Comedy Central, any writer that's ever written for a show, go out and see them at clubs, Look at all their tweets, look at all their Instagrams, look at all their Facebook posts, look at anything they put on social media and start judging and saying, okay, this one crossed the line here, now they're gone. This one crossed. If you do that, there's a really good chance you're going to be left with no comedians. We, we can't start judging these things in this vacuum and taking, you know, all of Artie's other tweets saying, forget about those, we're going to just concentrate on these. Listen, sometimes jokes don't work. And a lot of people don't see the process of getting a joke to the place where it works. A lot of times they fail. Unfortunately, with social media, as opposed to the stage in a room with 30 to 40 people, it goes to thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people at once. And the reaction is normally the people that don't like the joke will jump all over you. People that laugh. You know what? A lot of times if a joke seems inappropriate, if a joke seems to cross the line and a person laughs at it and they in their back of their mind, being, oh, my God, I really shouldn't be laughing at that. They will be hesitant to favorite the joke. Give it a like because they don't want people to know that they agree with that form of humor however the people that don't like the joke they will not hesitate in just starting to rip you apart and this is the state of comedy this is where we are people that find things funny that may be cringeworthy or may toe the line on decency those people laugh on the inside and they hold it in, and they love the joke, and they love the humor. They're careful. They look around the room to see who's watching at their, you know, at this joke. But when it's time to boo something, when it's time to let people know about it, boy, there's no hesitation. And that's where our country is. We, we don't think twice about being a critic. But when it comes time to supporting something, we again, we temper, we look, we pause, we search the room, we look around at who's looking. Someone else laughed. Okay, now I can laugh. Another comedian who had an issue, and this one I didn't understand at all. Chris Rock was the host of Saturday Night Live, um, I guess it was two weeks ago, came out and did a joke about the Boston Marathon and, and 9-11 in New York City. And it started with the, with the fact that the Freedom Tower just opened. Now, you know, a lot of times in comedy, this happens. The Freedom Tower opens. It gives rise to 9-11 humor, which then ties into terrorist humor. And you find ways to bring and recycle jokes back. 
Um, I saw the monologue. I found nothing offensive about it. Now, if there were people that were affected by 9-11, and there have, there's a lot of us between Washington, D.C., New York City, um, you know, people that got on that flight in Boston, people in Pennsylvania, family all over the country, all over the world who lost people in 9-11, um, including myself, lost friends in 9-11. Yes, it's a sensitive topic, but that does not mean it comes off the table for all time when it comes to comedy and humor. And again, what's the barometer to say that's an appropriate 9-11 joke? That's not an appropriate 9-11 joke. The same barometer used for all comedy. Is it funny? Period. That's what it comes down to. Now, with regards to Chris, said, I'm not going to sit here. I would never say I, my, my opinion as to whether or not I found something funny, didn't find something funny, because it's just that. It's my opinion. Watch it. Make your own judgment on it. That I found anything in that set to be inappropriate, cruel, mean, demeaning towards the people that suffered losses on 9-11 or in Boston in a marathon, absolutely nothing. Nothing. And I'm going to tell you right now, the first time I saw humor tackled on television with regards to 9-11 really well was Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm. They did a thing about um, a, a, a character who lost their father in 9-11. And as it turned out, the, the person who died on 9-11 didn't die in a World Trade Center attack. They died uptown in just an accident that had nothing to do with the terrorist attack. And the whole show was about, yeah, but the, the person died on 9-11 but didn't die in 9-11. And Larry David, in his usual way, tackled it in such a brilliant manner was it demeaning to 9-11 people and and the people who suffered loss and family no Larry David did a thing about being a holocaust survivor and he had on what was one of the characters from the tv show survivor and they were at a dinner table and there was the holocaust survivor and then the guy from the tv show survivor and there was an argument about who was a real survivor and it was brilliant, brilliant. And again, that attacks the Holocaust. And again, I use the word attack because that's the way people love to do this stuff. It finds humor in the Holocaust. What comedy is, is an attempt to find humor in otherwise very tragic, difficult, challenging, everyday life. It turns tragedy into comedy. Life is difficult enough. What stand-up comedians do, what writers do, that write comedy, sitcom writers, people that do sketch comedy, we're just trying to lighten the mood a little bit. And a lot of times we tackle difficult subjects. I do a, a Hurricane Katrina joke that people laugh at hysterically and then come up to me and say to me, my God, that joke is just so wrong, but it's just so funny. Yes, that's the point. You find things and find a way to make them humorous. All things. Nothing, nothing is off limits in comedy. However, 
in America in 2014 on the verge of 2015, the rules are changing for certain people. And this is where the public at large, this is where you listening to this podcast have to start voicing your opinion when you find something funny that other people are trying to bring down the comedian, bring down comedy, bring down stuff. This is inappropriate. The people that find it funny, you have to help us wave this free speech banner because if comedians lose the ability to make fun of everything, this country is screwed. This country is done. I am. This is not about ego. I'm telling you right now, stand-up comedians, comedic writers, we are the last line of defense for free speech in this country. Period. End of story. Not lawyers, because lawyers will write laws to take away free speech. Okay, there are lawyers that will look to 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 file lawsuits and profit from the ability to restrict speech for their own personal gain. The last line of defense is stand-up comedians and comedic writers, Hollywood. This is it. And, you know, I was recently interviewed in the Bergen Record by another guy who's a very funny guy, writes great comedy columns for the Bergen Record, Bill Ervolino. And we were talking about the state of comedy and where it's going and the state of entertainment And it's really, really sad. And I always bring up the same example, and I'm going to keep bringing it up. I don't care. I will pound this into your heads. The TV show All in the Family in the 70s, okay, was about a a guy who was racist and bigoted, and he mistreats his wife to a certain degree. He mistreats his son-in-law. He mistreats his neighbors based on racial stereotypes. The show was brilliant, okay? The TV show MASH took a triage unit in Vietnam and found humor in a place and a time. And and MASH was done while Vietnam basically was still very fresh in our minds. It's almost like doing a show about a triage, you know, a, a medical tent in in Baghdad right now or medical tent in Afghanistan right now. That's how fresh it was. And they were able to find humor because you know why? Because we had a sense of humor in the seventies and eighties. We've lost our sense of humor in this country. And you know, here's part of the problem. Part of the problem is everybody wants to be a stand-up comedian. Everybody wants to be funny, but not everybody has the ability to be funny. And everybody gives comedy a shot in a sense. And when newscasters, anchormen, anchorwomen, TV show hosts that are, it's, it's not what you would call a comedy show. It's a news show, CNN, Fox people. What happens is they take a shot at being funny and it falls flat and people get offended. Here's the the first thing. Leave the comedy to the pros, okay? If you're not a comedian, if you're a politician, if you're a newscaster, do your job. 
The second you start crossing over on lines and, and treading that, that fine line between news and comedy, then what happens is you start offending people, and then everybody starts losing their rights over it. See, that's what happens. One person screws up, and we have this knee-jerk reaction. Okay, no, now no one can do that joke. Now no one can make fun of this. This topic is off limits. So that's the first thing, is everyone's trying their hand at humor that can't do it. Leave it to the Lenny Bruce's, leave it to the Artie Langs, leave it to the Chris Rocks, the Michael Che. You know what? Screw it. Leave it to the Vince August to find the, the humor in things. Jon Stewart, Colbert, Letterman, Fallon, the, the people with uh, Kimmel, teams of writers, Conan. You know, the, you know, the amount of work that goes into these shows to write comedy, okay, is not the same amount of work that a guy sits behind the desk doing a news show and then something pops into his head, it blurts out, and then it becomes offensive. So you know what? When, when a comedian tries humor and it fails, that's part of our process. When other people do it and it becomes offensive, and then you start taking things away from you know stand-ups and comedy and start pulling subjects off the table, no, no. Let us do our process... And just sit back. You don't like it. You don't have to laugh. But this backlash at Chris Rock and Artie Lang and fire them and ban them. No. What you're doing is you're interfering with the comedic process. This is part of our process. Don't laugh. We get it. It's not funny. We'll rework it. If you've ever gone to a comedy club, and it's amazing to me how few people actually go to comedy clubs when i perform at bananas i headlined bananas this weekend it's amazing how many people came up to me this is my first time at a comedy club if i had a dollar for every time i've heard this is my first time at a comedy club i'd be doing better than as a comedian as i would as a lawyer okay i wouldn't have to work anymore if i got a dollar for every time someone said to me my first time at a comedy club a lot of people don't even know what happens in comedy clubs you will hear a comedian on stage say after a joke, you know what, man, I'm going to tweak that one a little bit. I'm going to work. I'm going to rework that one. That's our process. Unfortunately or fortunately, today, that process now involves social media. We will throw out a tweet. We will throw out a post, which may be the seed to spawn an entire set. To see what the reaction is. I do it all the time. Sometimes people react hilariously. I will then take it from print and social media to stage. Sometimes it works better in social media than it does on stage. Sometimes it works better on stage than it does social media. This is part of our, this is us in the lab working. So you know what? When a guy like Artie Lang and Che, they do this kind of stuff. You know what? Just understand what it is. All right. We're not scientists. We're not newscasters. Okay. We are comedians. Treat us as such and understand and take it from that perspective. Um, I, I did a show for Gilda's Club, which is the Gilda Radner Club, um, which supports uh, people going through cancer treatment. And Alan Zweibel t- told this amazing story. And basically, you know, he was one of the writers on Saturday Night Live when it first started. 
and he worked there for years. Just a brilliant, brilliant comedic mind. And he was very good friends, best friends with Gilda Radner. And when he found out Gilda Radner was sick, you know, he eventually sat with her in her house and, and he said, what can I do for you? And Gilda said, make me laugh. And part of what Gilda's Club is, is this place where people can come together that are going through this miserable disease and the treatments and everything and laugh. And annually now for the fifth year in a row, they've put on this comedy concert and Gilbert Godfrey goes out before me and place has got 700 people in a huge auditorium and does a joke that, you know, people moaned at and they said, well, you know, he shouldn't have done it there. No, no, that this is exactly where he should have done the joke. And basically what he talked about was going out on stage and how great it is to see people come together to support one another and how the comedians were in the back. And we love doing this show and we love coming there for basically for free and putting on this performance and making people laugh and and how this all comes together. And based on that, you know what? I hope they never cure cancer. Now, that line got a huge laugh out of me and many of the people backstage. I understand people were cringing in the audience. And what the joke is, he doesn't really mean he hopes they never cure cancer. That's not what he means. The point of the joke is, you know, this great thing that comes together is the product of this awful disease. And if we cure this awful disease, what are we going to have reason to come together anymore? It's a joke. It's a great joke. It's a hilarious joke. People cringed. He did another joke, and then, you know, again, because the audience wasn't with him, because they got so offended by that, he then broke into his act, and they never quite warmed up to Gilbert for being Gilbert. Two things about that. One, again, the joke was funny. The joke is funny. Um, second, you're, you're at an event where someone just said a story how Gilda wanted to laugh. And if you heard the stories why Bell told and how they made fun of each other and how they joked about the illness, that's the way people cope with their problems. You make fun of it. It's part of the healing process. Some people do that, everybody. Relax. It was the perfect follow to Zwei Bell. And, 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 you know, Gilbert took such a comedic chance, and it was a brilliant chance, and in my mind it worked. But again, the sensitivities of people, and right away people started ripping Gilbert, and it was so misplaced, so misplaced. I did Bananas. This past weekend, three shows um, had two packed houses, um, sold out the, the Saturday shows, Friday show, big house, 170 people, place holds, you know, like 250. They were thrilled, you know, great numbers. I did, I'm going to say an hour set in each of the three shows. The Friday night show, it was probably 50 minutes of new material I've worked on this year. The Saturday early show, again, 50 minutes of new material. The late show, because I went longer, it was maybe 75, 25 new material to older stuff to, to mix in. Okay, after Friday night, standing ovation by half of the crowd. One of the comics I worked with, Pat Dixon, when I got off stage, 
said to me, dude, he goes, he goes, I don't know if you can see. He goes, probably not, but the back of the room gave you a standing ovation. That was the reaction from the crowd. Somebody comes up to me after the show. Oh, my God. Love the show. This was great. Seen you before. I wish you did some of the old stuff. And I was like, really? Don't get me wrong. Love the new stuff. I wish you did some of the old stuff. I'm like, well, what old stuff? I love your hunting bit. Okay, but did you like? No, no, no. The new stuff is great. I love it. I really do. But there's just, you know, it's, you know what that is? That's going to see Bruce Springsteen in concert. And he doesn't do Born to Run. And he gives you a four-hour show, leaves out Born to Run. You leave there going, my God, what another amazing Bruce concert. I can't believe he didn't do Born to Run. I mean, come on, man. Really? There's really no winning with an audience like that? Saturday show. And I had an 85-year-old in the audience who came up to me afterwards, hugged me. Oh, my God, never laughed so hard. I had someone who was a judge, a position of power, that was a superior to me when I was a judge, came to the Saturday show in his 70s, told me, phenomenal. I thought I loved you the first time I saw Even funnier this time. After the show, I'm standing out in the hallway. Woman comes up to me next to her daughter. Daughter says, oh, my God, it was great, this and that. Her mom comes up to me, looks at me, kind of gives me a head tilt. You know, you should really gauge your material towards 70 and older a little bit more because I felt left out. I said, excuse me? Yeah, you know, your material doesn't really apply to people my age. You should really write more jokes for people 70 and older. Well, first of all, let's think about this. I had two people, 85-year-old, take a picture with me after the show. Another guy in his 70s, judge, conservative, tell me I was funnier this time than the last time he saw me. But this one person is now going to speak for everybody 70 and older. Not, you know what? You're not my cup of tea. And I, if, listen, if she looked at me and said to me, you're not my cup of tea, hey, you know what? I'm not everybody's flavor. Not everybody likes vanilla. Not everybody likes chocolate. It is what it is. Okay? I am fine with that. And I, I embrace that much like this podcast. Some people, you know what? You don't like it. You don't want to listen to it. Get it. Other people love it. Great. I am not everybody's cup of tea. Super. But to now stand there and speak for everyone 70 years old and over and say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to speak for the older generation. You know what, lady? Screw you. Because I wish I had the other two people to tell you what kind of a whore you are for even coming over to me and saying that to me. When people are lining up to take pictures with me and ask for autographs, you have the nerve to stand and say, yeah, you know what? 70 and older, we don't get you. No. You know what? You don't get me. And that's fine. Don't become the voice for the geriatrics, bitch. Okay. Leaving that alone. Getting into comedy crowds and, you know, reactions. And people say to me, you know, what shows do you love working and don't work? When I headline locally, for me, it's stress. Because a lot of people have seen me before, and I have to do what I did 
this weekend at Bananas. I headlined in April, so here I am back in November. I know a lot of the same people, or I assume a lot of the same people are coming to see me. So you know what I do? I write. I write. I write because I don't want people to get, you know, Oh, we've seen it before. I guess he's a one-trick pony. Whereas if you can show them something completely new, wow, this guy, you know what? Every time there's something new coming out of his mouth. It also prevents me from doing a lot of crowd work. If I recognize people, I don't do crowd work with people I recognize. It becomes trickier. I love doing shows where I don't know the audience standing in direct line of vision in front of me. I love that I have regulars. That's why we have careers as comedians. The regulars keep coming. You motivate me to write. The reason now I have three hours of materials because of the repeat customers. And thank you for that. Thank you. You motivate me to work harder. I love doing the crowd work stuff. People love when I do the crowd work. How come you don't do more? Because I see everybody I know in front of me and I can't do that with familiar faces. One of the reasons I love doing the daily show when I warm up for the daily show is because it's for me all improv. I don't do any of my material for the Daily Show crowd because it's a live show and the whole purpose is letting the audience know they're part of the show. Let them know that you're not sitting there watching a comedian doing stand-up. You're not watching a TV show. You're here to be a part of this. You're here to laugh when John says something funny. You're here to react when a guest comes out, when a guest says something funny, when a guest says something. We want you to moan, groan, laugh, smile, cheer. So you have to do crowd work in that situation. The audience tends to be very smart. Let's Let's not forget who they're there to see. Very smart audience. I love doing that kind of stuff. Okay, but part of the reason why I stayed a lawyer and kept my day job, first of all, there's there's a lot of reasons. One, I enjoy doing the work. Two, I find no romance in being in, in a position where I'm struggling financially to pay my bills so I can pursue this dream. I, I, there's no romance in the, you know, the, the waiter trying to be a, 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 an actor. I don't, I don't see that. Three, I had the opportunity to be a lawyer. And I was going to take it. Four, I'm good at it, so I'm going to continue to do it. But five, and maybe most importantly, one of the reasons I kept my day job is I never wanted stand-up comedy, acting, entertainment career, show business. I never wanted it to be a job in the sense that everyone has their primary job. Because what I've come to notice is no matter what the job is, eventually it becomes just that, a job. And you tend to have resentment towards comedy club owners, bookers, managers, agents, and even the audience that comes up to you afterwards. Even the audience that responds to your tweets and tells you that's inappropriate. Even the media, which then starts to attack you for saying that the joke was inappropriate, your tweet was inappropriate. You know, the great thing about the way I've handled these two careers, and I'm, my, I need my law job to help me pay my bills. I need my comedy job and my entertainment and my show business career to pay my bills at this point. I'm, I'm dependent on, po- on both of them because they support me equally. But because I've never put my eggs all in that entertainment basket, I have never developed the animosity that a lot of people in this business develop 
towards the business. And let me tell you something right now. When comedians, actors, when we are approached by people in the public and attacked by people in the public, this is why we pull away from you. This is why we tend to hide in a green room. This is why, because you know what? You pour your heart out into a joke. You put out a tweet and you get fired. You get banned for it. You put an Instagram post and people call you insensitive to women. You do an opening sketch on Saturday Night Live and people tell you you're making fun of a topic that's not funny. You go to do a benefit for a cancer foundation, do a joke, and people feel you're being insensitive towards their illness, even though you're there for charity. You put on a show for a weekend. People tell you how they want to hear something you've done before when you're trying to give them something new. You put on a show for people, and then you speak for an entire age group and say, you should write more for me and not for the masses. This is part of the reason why entertainers pull away from audiences. This is the state of comedy in America. You attack us. You attack what we do. And it brings down everything. Okay? Let us do our job. If you don't like us, move on to the next one. But the attacks need to stop. Again, we are the last line of defense for free speech. You don't like us? Fine. Be careful with the attacks. Because in the end, the the people you're going to hurt most is everybody. Everybody. You're tearing down the most important thing we have in the United States, which is our sense of humor. If of all the things I am most proud of this country, having traveled, having met people from different countries, is I've always felt our sense of humor is the best in the world until now. We are losing our sense of humor. That's the state of comedy in America. Next topic. I'm going to dive right in. Black Friday is now creeping in on Thanksgiving and people are losing their minds. Oh my God. The Facebook posts, the tweets, the stories online, the, 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 the news coverage. And, you know, here in Bergen County, we have um, malls, mall capital of America with Garden State Plaza and Paramus Park. And the malls have decided they're going to open on Thanksgiving Day, and people are beside themselves with, why is this happening? Oh, my God, the humanity. How are we going to survive this holiday? And you know what? I've come up with the answer. I've come up with the solution to how you're going to survive Thanksgiving with the malls open. When you're sitting down having your dinner at Thanksgiving in your house and the bus shows up from Walmart, from Macy's, from whatever mall around the corner of your house and they ring your doorbell and tell you, guys, you got to stop eating 
and get on the bus. We're taking it to the mall. Don't get on the bus. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on a second. You mean to tell me they don't come pick you up at your house and pull you out of your house and bring you to the mall? You mean you actually have to go to the mall in order to go shopping? I'm talking to my imaginary producer. I don't have a producer. It's just me in a room. But I'm, I'm looking at my, as if there's a glass and there's a producer telling me that this is what happens. So wait a minute. Wait a minute, imaginary producer. You mean someone doesn't come to your house and actually pick you up and take you to the mall? You have to go voluntarily? Oh. So even though these malls are open, you're telling me you have a choice as to whether or not you want to go? Oh, well, geez, that changes everything. All right, hold on a second. But, but what about the people that are being forced to work on Thanksgiving? We are returning. This is involuntary servitude. This is slavery. What? Wait a minute. Hold on. My imaginary producer is talking to me again. You mean those people have to volunteer to work that day? You can't be forced to work on Thanksgiving? And they're getting paid time and a half and double time sometimes? So why would they do it? What would possess someone to work? Maybe they need the money? Maybe working that day is more important to them than being at home for Thanksgiving? Wait a minute. Hold on a second. You mean to tell me some people don't have a situation where they sit at a huge family dinner? You mean not everybody is sitting at a family dinner at Thanksgiving at a huge table with turkey and stuffing everything? You mean there are some people that don't have that? Get out of here. Come on. So those people that don't have that want to work and make extra money that day? Wow. So they're not being forced to work? Well, there goes that. All right. Hold on a second. But what about the greedy People that are opening their doors now a day early to make money. They're going to make that money all. They've made it all year long. They're going to make. What do you mean they haven't made it all year long? Hold on. My produce, my imaginary producer is telling me that a lot of companies, the reason it's called Black Friday is they jump into the black for the first time that point in the year so you mean to tell me they've been struggling all year long and this is where they make their money and if those companies don't make that money on that day they can't hire employees to pay which effect trickles down on the entire economy well hold on that changes that too all right but, but wait a minute hold on i've got one argument you can't top what about the animals that line up and we've seen the videos at all these doors and start pouring into stores at midnight and start trampling people for 50% off. Wait, hold on. My imaginary producer is giving me another line here. Wait, what? You mean to tell me if you open earlier and you spread out the, the times you're open, you can avoid those stampedes because now the sale goes on for longer and it's not a first come first serve. So in, in a sense... By just opening the store as you would regularly and not having this midnight madness, it's creating a safer environment. Okay, fine. All right. All right. That, that's a safety argument. Wait a second. Hold on. But what about this whole need for an Xbox and, and, and a PlayStation and 50% off? I mean, really, do you need it that bit? Wait a minute. What? Some people struggle financially, and that 50% off is the only way they can afford to get those things for their kids. So you mean to tell me the average person who's sitting at home at that Thanksgiving dinner with this full table worth of food that they're probably not going to finish eating, and they're going to be throwing food out, 
those people have a different financial circumstance and don't understand what it is to have the need to buy things at a discount for their less fortunate family? Well, that's nuts. But you know what? Hold on, producer, imaginary producer behind the glass. All other businesses are closed. What about, what do you mean gyms are open? What, well, yeah, yeah. No, I know. My, my gym is open. Yeah, and those, there are people that work the gym. No, the gym doesn't just open itself. The door doesn't just magically unlock and people walk in. Right, no, and, and there's a lot of people working out there in the morning. Yeah, but they're not selling. Well, they do sell T-shirts and stuff like that, but that's not why people are going there. People are going there to work out, and they close early. What, what do you mean how many hours are they open? They're open for about five or six hours. You mean the same five or six hours that the mall's going to be open? Hmm. Yeah, but, but you know what? You don't have to go to gy- gyms can close because they have runs, and, and they have, like, these turkey trot things. And, yeah, th- there are people that work that, too. Yeah, there are volunteers. Yeah. Right. Well, no, they're not forced to work, but they just want to. Hmm. Let's, so wait a minute. Hold on a second. So you mean to tell me that really no one's forcing anyone to work on Thanksgiving? No one's forcing anyone to shop on Thanksgiving? And that maybe, just maybe, the people that need to work or are working are working because they need to work. The people that are shopping are shopping because they need to take advantage of the savings. So you mean to tell me the people that actually are out there doing that stuff are doing it because they either need to or very simply want to? Well, yeah, I know it's American. We, people should be allowed to do that kind of stuff. But but hold on. But it's wrong because you should be at home eating dinner with your family because it's American. And that's what Americans do. We, we celebrate being at home and eating with your family and, and sitting at a table and, 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 and texting your friends while you're sitting at that table and, and, and watching a football game when, when, you're, when you're sitting at dinner conversing with your well not really conversing because you're watching the game but you know what I'm saying you should be at home with your family distracted by TV and and texting your friends and and not at a mall shopping everybody relax all right listen no one's forcing you to go to the mall no one's forcing you to work okay it's voluntary if you sit at home with your family on Thanksgiving god bless you If you need to work and you have an opportunity to work to make extra money, God bless you. If the thing that brings you joy is going to get that thing. Listen, as far as shopping, other than food, clothing, health care, there's a lot of stuff none of us need. But yet there are things we want. And you know what? For certain people to say, oh, you have to have that is so hypocritical. And the people that say it 90% of the time are the people that have this crap already. Listen, I had albums. I didn't need CDs. Okay, I liked my albums. I liked my record players. And then the industry changed, and then you couldn't find record players anymore. And then I had to get a CD. And then when I had CDs, I liked my CDs. I didn't want or need an iPod and then CDs started disappearing and now there's no more tower record and video and now, now there's no more virgin record and video. Now, now I had to get I was one of the last people to get an iPod 
What of the? In fact, I had an iPod for three years. I didn't even know how to use the thing. It sat in a box. All right, there's a lot of things we don't need, but we still get because we want. And to sit there and rip people apart. Oh my God, you've got a shop. Hey, you know what? You've got to go to the gym. Oh my God, you you've got to you know you, you got to go, you got to watch the game. What you had to go run this morning? Everybody, just relax, enjoy your holiday, and listen to what the day is called. Thanksgiving. Why don't you just be thankful for what you have? Don't worry about what other people have, don't have enough. Just be thankful for what you have. Oh my God, it's absolutely mind-numbing. The the again the reaction and the the just sheer the the oh the humanity. They're gonna open the malls. We're all gonna die. Uh, it's going to be terrible. I'm going to have traffic. Wait a minute. I'm not going out. I'm actually staying at home. I'm going to my parents' house 10 minutes away. I'm not going to drive through that traffic. But it's wrong for everybody. Stop it. Stop it. Please. Oh, my God. Um, quick notes to end. The Kim Kardashian thing and, and the whole thing with the picture on the Internet. You know what? It, it, listen, I, I blame the public for that. Again, the more the more that you guys give her attention, that's why she gets attention. And as far as her picture and her pictorial, this has been going on for years. People posing in Playboy and oh my god, this one took off her top and again, and part of the the outrage is the fact this country nudity is so taboo. Kim, good for you and your big giant ass and and you want to show off your naked body. I have to tell you, you know what? A lot of times, it's better to leave things to the imagination. Now, you've shown us everything you got. You got nothing else that I want to see. Um, the cake boss got a DWI. Um, Buddy Velasco, bravo. You might want to jump on this one. I know how you guys love you know, these reality stars that are in trouble. Give him his new show, BWI, Baking While Intoxicated. It's ready-made for you. Jump all over it. Guys, um, episode seven in the books. Please keep passing on the word. The only way this podcast grows is if you share it, tell people about it, drive everyone to either Podomatic, iTunes, follow me, Facebook, Twitter, all over the place. I've got shows at Caroline's and all over North Jersey. Everyone, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a Vince August fan.